We just finished a series last week through the book of Genesis, and so uh, in two weeks we're going to be starting a series that will prepare us for Christmas, um, but this morning we're going to talk about James chapter 1, verse 26 through two, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, and I'm here because I want to talk this morning about finding and living a life that matters. Um, this is a somewhat famous passage in the Bible, certainly famous to the book of James, where James uh, distills everything down to talk about pure and undefiled religion or true religion, as some uh, translations put it. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. And when I find the page number, I'll tell you what that is if you're using the Pew Bible. Um, It is found on page 1011. So we're going to start at the end of chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 26, and read down through chapter 2, verse (coughs) 7. Let's give our attention now to God's holy and inerrant word. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Um, Let's let's pray just for a moment before we come and ask for God's help as we look at this passage. (coughs) Father, we do need your help this morning. Um, These are your words, and it's our desire to understand these words and to have them applied to our lives. Um, We need you to do that by work of your own grace and mercy because you love us. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand with our minds. Um, We pray that you would help us to obey with our wills. We pray that Uh, In the depth of our being, uh, as we open your word, you would captivate us with your beauty um, and transform us into the likeness of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Um, Over the past year or two, I've given 
one particular author a, a lot of press from the pulpit. Um, his name is uh, Ernest Becker, and it's mainly because I read his Pulitzer Prize uh, winning book from 1973 called The Denial of Death, and I just found it fascinating. Uh, I found it fascinating. I'm not saying I understood everything that he was writing about. There are many times I thought, I need a PhD in psychology or philosophy to understand what he's talking about. But um, on the whole, it's just absolutely fascinating. He was a cultural anthropologist, and he observed, his observation was that all of humanity is trying to cope with the terror of death and mortality and the very temporariness of life, um, because he saw that we all want to last. Um, we all want our lives to matter and to have an impact. Uh, we want to have some. We want our lives to have some kind of lasting significance about them. And so, Becker in this book argues that every person, every culture, every society constructs uh, what he calls immortality projects to cope with the fear and anxiety that we don't matter. And so, as you might imagine, for somebody like Becker, uh, he saw all religious claims, including Christianity, as immortality projects designed to cope with this fear of of mortality and death. But here's the interesting thing. If all humanity is engaged in these immortality projects, then we would expect to see it everywhere in life. And this is where Becker is really genius, because he saw that lying behind our desperate need for something like romantic love is a deep desire to prove to ourselves that we matter and that we are lovable because someone loves us. He said lying behind our artistic endeavors he says, is a deep desire to create something of lasting significance in the world, to, which will prove our significance. It's what lies behind our, he would say, our desire to succeed in business or to succeed in parenting or to accumulate wealth and power or to passionately support some cause. Lying behind all of that are these immortality projects that we're constructing to prove that we matter. And I don't agree with all of his conclusions, but I do think he had his finger on the pulse of humanity here. We are desperate to know we matter, to prove that we have value, to justify our lives, um, to know that we're lovable. Uh, that we can last and be significant to know we matter, right? So the question, is it even possible to matter? Um, And if it is, how can we get a life that truly matters? And if we can find some kind of assurance that we matter, how can that change us and make us different? Um, These are the questions James is answering in the passage that we read and in more profound ways than Ernest Becker. James had his finger on the pulse of humanity, on the deepest desire of humanity and its satisfaction. So I want to think about four things 
this morning. Occasionally I do that because I want you to know I can count beyond three. Um, but here are, here are the four things I want us to think about. First, the lifestyle that matters. Second, the people who matter. Third, how Jesus matters. And then fourth, how we can matter and be like Jesus or be like our Father. So let me give them to you again real quick. The lifestyle that matters, the people who matter, how Jesus matters, and how we can matter and be like our Father. So first, the lifestyle that matters. Okay, in chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, James wrote that pure and undefiled religion before God consists of three things that you see in those verses. A controlled tongue keeping oneself unstained from the world and caring for widows and orphans. And I'm just going to try to get us to see the big picture here, because if you're unfamiliar with the book of James, what he's basically doing here is he's giving you an outline for his entire book, because in chapter 3, he addresses controlling the tongue. In chapter 4, he'll address keeping yourself unstained from the world. In chapter 5, he'll talk about how we, how we use our wealth to care for others. Um, but big picture here, the lifestyle that matters, James wrote, is a lifestyle of compassion, of integrity, and justice. Using our words to bring healing and not brokenness into the world. Living whole, consistent, uncompromised, morally pure lives, integrity. Protecting and caring for the most helpless people in society, justice. Now that's it, just just those three things. So how are we doing with just those three things. Um, We hear a ton in the news today about Democrats and Republicans, about liberals and conservatives, but if we had to simplify and summarize the differences between political liberals and conservatives, let me offer you this as a way we could do it. Um, Liberals believe that the most important thing in life is social justice. But how you personally live your life shouldn't be anyone's burden or business but your own. And conservatives believe that the most important thing is how you personally and morally live your life, but how you choose to spend your money shouldn't be anyone's business but your own. Now, are those stereotypes? Yes. And I imagine that every one of you wants to tell me right now, But my view is so much more nuanced than those views. Um, I'm sure they are, um, and you really don't have to tell me that uh, later. I I don't want to hear it. But my my point is my point is that um, we're painting with broad strokes. And my point is that we can't even theoretically agree on these three things that James mentions, much less live them out. But here's the question, why are these three things at the very essence for James of a lifestyle that matters? And I think if James were here, he would tell you, because these are the things that matter to the very heart of God. Proverbs chapter 6 says, there are six things that the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination to him. And where does he start with his list of seven things? 
haughty eyes and a lying tongue, an uncontrolled tongue. God is a God of truth and reality, not lies and deception. Isaiah wrote that the angelic choir is always praising God, who is holy, holy, holy. The only time anything in the Scriptures is ever emphasized three times like that, by by triple repetition. God is absolutely pure, whole, consistent, and unstained. And the psalmist gave God this title in Psalm 68, said he is a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows. He is forever on the side of the helpless, the poor, and the oppressed. James says this is the lifestyle that matters because it is a reflection of God's own heart. These are the things that matter to him. I read this book a few years ago called The Heart and the Fist. Um, It's a great book written by a guy named Eric Greitens, who I found out just the other day is now the governor of Missouri, second youngest governor ever in America. He's a Rhodes Scholar, uh, but also a Navy SEAL. Um, And in this book, describing his SEAL training, he wrote about the final week of training, uh, of SEAL training called Hell Week, um, which as you read about it, seems like a pretty appropriate name. Um, A week-long deal of just this intense physical, psychological, intellectual, even spiritual and emotional test that these guys go through. And Greitens wrote down what his training officer told his class about the coming of Hell Week, and this is what he said. He said, each one of you is like an earthen vessel, a beautiful piece of pottery, prettied up by your fathers and mothers and teachers with tender, loving care. But in a few days, Hell Week is going to begin, and we're going to take every one of you out onto the grinder, and we're going to smash you on the ground, break you open, and we're going to see what's inside each of you. With many of you, we'll find nothing. There's just air. You are empty men without substance. For others, when you break, we're going to have to turn away from the smell because you live in a weak culture that has allowed you to get by on charm and pretty talk and backslapping, and you have practiced dishing manure for so long that it almost seeps out of your every pore. And now that is what you are. And he says this, for others, when we smash you, we'll find inside a sword made of pure Damascus steel, and you are going to become Navy SEALs. Hoo-ah! Right? Um, Which is the army, I know. I don't don't know what Navy says, but, but I love that quote. I love that quote. When everything's stripped away, and you're laid bare, what will be there? James was saying, if you don't care for the, the helpless, if you don't control your tongue, 
if you don't keep yourself unstained from the world, when all the Bible knowledge and the many eloquent prayers you've prayed and all the ties that you've committed every week and your perfect church attendance are all stripped away, your life will be found to be empty if you haven't done these three things. Without substance, it'll be insignificant. It won't matter. And if not, it'll be putrid in its smell. Because listen, if you aren't in some way living out compassion, justice, and integrity, you are contributing to and participating in the evil and the brokenness of this world. James lifts up this lifestyle that matters before us. And the question for us this morning is, is that us? Is that your life? If you were opened up, what would we find? Are you at least moving in this direction? And if you're not, why aren't you? Okay, second, the people who matter. Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2 are pretty plain. James describes a scene in a church where a rich man shows up, um, and he's shown favoritism, where a poor man is cast to the side. And James wrote about how contrary this is to God himself, who chose the poor to inherit his kingdom, verse 5, he says. God's kingdom flips, entirely flips upside down the world's values when it comes to the people who really matter. Here's what I mean, what I want you to understand. Ever since elementary school, you and I have been walking into rooms and sizing people up. We want to know when we walk in the room, who are the cool people, who are the not cool people? Who are the popular and the unpopular? The haves and the have-nots? the athletic and the unathletic. You know, it's what we did in the cafeteria school in, in elementary school, but then we also did it in junior high. We also did it in senior high. And then we grew up a little bit more, and the rooms and the sophistication with which we size people up just changed a little bit the older we got. Of course, James is right here. We're always looking at the outward appearances, and we want to be aligned with the wealthy, not the poor, so we give them preferential treatment. And you know, socioeconomic status, that's just one way we've been sizing up people in the rooms that we walk into. Because yes, the wealthy get priority over the poor, and the cool over the uncool, and the attractive over the unattractive, and the successful over the unsuccessful, and the educated over the uneducated, and the homeschooling parents over the non-homeschooling parents, or vice versa. Right? Elitism, classism, racism, where does that stuff come from? We group with people who look like, talk like, think like, and act like us. And James is saying there is something terrible and horrific about favoritism. Because when you play favorites, you end up ignoring the very people who matter most to God. 
His kingdom flips upside down our world's values when it comes to the people who matter. In his kingdom, the way down is up and the way up is down. Philip Yancey, author, uh, spoke to a group of women who were trapped in prostitution, and I've always found this story fascinating. At the end of the conference, in the end of his speaking engagement, he was speaking with one of these women, and he told her what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 21, verse 31, where Jesus said, "'Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before basically the religious authorities of the day.'" And so he asked this prostitute, when you hear that, what do you think Jesus meant? Why did he single out prostitutes? And this is what she said, everyone has someone to look down on, but not us. We are at the bottom. Our families feel shame for us. No mother looks at her little girl and says, Honey, when you grow up, I want you to be a good prostitute. In most places, we're breaking the law. Believe me, we know how people feel about us. People call us names, and I'm not going to list the names that she mentioned. And then she goes on, We feel it too. We're at the bottom. And sometimes... When you're at the bottom, you cry for help. So when Jesus comes, we respond. Maybe that's what he he meant. Maybe that's what he meant. (laughs) That's exactly what he meant, (laughs) right? When Jesus comes and you're at the bottom with nothing to offer him, when you're crying out for mercy, and grace, and Jesus shows up, you respond. The point of verses 1 through 7 in chapter 2 is that the moment you show partiality, verse 1, the moment you favor the wealthy over the poor, the cool over the uncool, the successful over the unsuccessful, verses 2 and 3, the moment you make distinctions among yourselves and become judges, verse 4, you have departed from the very essence of God's nature and have entirely abandoned grace for some kind of meritocracy. He is the defender of widows, the father of the fatherless. He moves towards the very bottom of society to the helpless and poor. One author that I was reading wrote that kindness to the poor is pure kindness. What does he mean by that? Kindness to the poor is pure kindness. See, when we size up the room, no matter the room, and when we play favorites, we're looking for some kind of a return on our investment, right? Perhaps financial, but at least emotional, social, or psychological, um, some kind of return on our investment. Because now, (coughs) excuse me, Because if I can get those people to like me, now I know I matter. Now I I know I fit in. Now I know I'm important, um, and I'm connected to the right people. But when you show kindness to the poor, it's pure kindness. Because they can't give you anything in return. 
And you need to look around you. Because there are lots of ways for you to practice this kind of pure kindness. I'm just going to give you one way in the life of our church that you can do this. Because Grace Community Church partners with Cordova Elementary School, which is just a couple miles away. And it's a school that draws heavily from government-subsidized housing where over two-thirds of the population of those kids, they come from homes that fall below the poverty line. And throughout the school year, each week, there are opportunities to volunteer and help kids with their reading. And let me tell you, tell you something. It is very inconvenient to do this. It's going to cause you to adjust your schedule, adjust your lunch hour, drive a distance. You don't want to drive in the middle of the day and then have to go back to work. Um, you're probably never going to be thanked by any of these children, even though you are making a huge difference in these kids' lives, right? We're doing a winter clothes driving. Justin announced it this morning um, for these students who need warm clothes in the winter, and it is going to be a hassle. I'm just telling you, it's going to be a hassle to go through your closets and go through boxes and that kind of thing to find winter clothes that you're not going to use anymore um, and to get them out and donate them. And it, you'll, you'll never know which children receive those clothes. No one will thank you for those clothes. I, I may thank you from the pulpit, but no one from Cordova Elementary School is probably going to thank you. And unlike giving your clothes to What's Plato's clothes closet or whatever it is, there will be no return for you. You will get nothing in return. And it will be pure kindness. It will be pure grace. Because they can never repay you for that. And I'm asking you at the end of this point, have you begun to see people through the upside-down vision of God's kingdom? And if you haven't, why haven't you? Are you playing favorites? If you realize you're calculating the return on your investments, why is that? What's keeping you from pure kindness? Okay, third, James tells us in this passage how Jesus matters. Um, That may not be the best way to phrase it, but in verse 1 of chapter 2, James called Jesus the Lord of glory. And every scholar realizes that that's a unique title to give Jesus in this context. See, the word glory has a very rich history in the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament because it's a word that means heaviness. It's a word that means weight or solid mass. And um, I I think that's what matter is, right? Um, It's been a long time since science class, but matter is an object's volume and its mass, its weight, its heaviness. Figuratively, it's a weight of importance. And James is, say, James is saying in this title, Jesus matters. He's the Lord of glory. But how did Jesus reveal his glory, his weightiness, his matter? Kent Hughes wrote this. The glory of Christ sprang from his downward mobility. I love that quote. The glory of Christ sprang from his downward mobility. In Isaiah 52, Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, this suffering servant. 
It's a very puzzling picture he gives you in Isaiah 52. Uh, Because in verse 13 of that chapter, Isaiah wrote that Jesus shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted. Right? He was writing about Jesus' unmatched, exalted importance and glory. But in the very next verse, verse 14, Isaiah wrote, His appearance will be so marred that he will be beyond human semblance. He is going to be full of glory, and he's going to be so abused and bloodied and disfigured that people are going to look at him and ask, is that even human? What is that? Now, how does this puzzling picture of exalted glory and disfigured brutality fit together? I want to suggest to you that this tension can only be resolved in the gospel. The gospel writer John wrote that Jesus, the Son of Man, would be lifted up, that is, exalted, glorified. He would be lifted up and shown to matter. But how does John say that Jesus would be lifted up? On a throne? No, on a wooden cross, fastened with nails through his hands and feet, bloodied and disfigured. And the whole Bible testifies along with John that the cross was the ultimate and chief display of Jesus' glory because his glory sprang from his downward mobility. And here's the simple reason why. Ultimate glory is when the one who possesses true glory gives it up for someone else. Many of you have probably heard of Dick and Rick Hoyt Team Hoyt, go YouTube him or something. Rick Hoyt was born with cerebral palsy, and the doctors told his parents um, when he was born that they needed to institutionalize his son and they refu- their their son, and they refused. And Rick's Rick's uh, father had never run in a race before in his life, but when Rick asked him to push him in his wheelchair in a race, he did it. And now they've run something like 240 triathlons together and 70 marathons. All of this with Rick's father pushing him in a wheelchair, pedaling him in a bike, excuse me, pulling him in a raft when he was swimming. It's not just that they race together, but that they're good, (laughs) right? They're usually just off the pace of the winners in these events that they enter. And everyone says, I saw this special thing on SportsCenter, and everyone says that Rick's father, Dick Hoyt, he could have been a world-class triathlete or marathon, marathon runner if he wasn't pushing his son. They've been doing this for 30 years, and Rick's father refuses to run without his son. And everyone recognizes, Sports Center included, something truly heroic about that. What is it? They're seeing the ultimate glory of someone giving up his glory for someone else. James wrote in chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is the Lord of glory, and He shows you how He matters. He reveals His glory in the cross. He gave up His glory for you. 
This is why any favoritism is terrible. It is an absolute betrayal of grace, of the glory that Jesus came to give you. Okay, finally, last point, how we can matter and be like our Father. <clears throat> I want to start this last point with trying to be honest, um, if you can go there with me. Um, here, I, here's what I want to say. Whether or not we admit it out loud or not, we're all afraid, and we're scared. Um, we are scared that we don't matter. We spend a lot of our energy in this life distracting ourselves through hobbies and entertainments and TV and obsessions with sports and so on, because I think the silence is really what terrifies us. Because when we get really quiet and still, we realize that we truly are scared that we don't matter, scared that no one would miss us if we're gone. Scared that we aren't really that important. Scared that we don't have any real weight or significance. Scared that we might not be lovable after all. And other, oftentimes this fear drives us to fit in with a certain group or to find romantic love as if that will heal us completely or, or to look a certain way or to achieve certain things. Or We often explain this, this uh, drive in our lives, we, we use positive words like, look at that ambition. Um, but truth be known, it's really just compulsion, a compulsive desire to prove to ourselves and to others and even to God that we matter and we're important. We have value and worth and we're significant. Jesus told this parable in Luke chapter 16 about a rich man who was dressed really well, and he lived in luxury all the days of his life, and he feasted every day. But at his gate was laid this poor beggar named Lazarus, who begged for food and was covered with sores. And in the parable that Jesus told, the day came when both men died, and poor Lazarus was carried into God's presence, but the rich man was tormented in hell. And maybe some of you remember this story, you can read it later. The rich man from hell begged that Lazarus could just tip, just dip his finger in some water and touch it to his tongue to ease some of his agony. There's a lot of interesting things about this parable, but the most interesting thing to me in this parable is that in all the parables that Jesus told, and he told a lot if you read through the Gospels, this is the only parable where a character ever gets a name, Lazarus, a poor beggar. The rich man spent a lifetime of accumulating wealth and power and influence to prove he mattered, but when death came, that's all he was is what Jesus is saying. He was just a rich man. He didn't even have a name. He didn't have an identity that could last forever. But Lazarus, who had nothing, had a name, and he had an identity that was untouchable by any of his circumstances, even death itself, and so he lasted forever. Lazarus had nothing, but he mattered, and he mattered forever. 
See, Ernest Becker was right that we're terrified that we don't matter. Um, And it's driving us at far deeper levels than we sometimes recognize and imagine. Ernest Becker, he died pretty early. He died when he was 49 years old and never became a Christian to my knowledge. But he did recognize this. This is what he wrote in The Denial of Death. As an ideal, Christianity, on all the things we have listed, stands high, perhaps even highest, in some vital ways, as people like Kierkegaard, Chesterton, Niebuhr, and so many others have compellingly argued. See, he wouldn't accept it, but of all the ideals of all the religions in the world, he knew Christianity was compelling because only Christianity offers real grace and real glory. <clears throat> and real glory. See, unlike every other religion, every other ideal, Christianity says, if you come to Jesus, you can stop trying to prove that you matter. Right? You don't need to construct any immortality projects anymore. You are free when you come to Jesus. He gave up his glory to give you a glory that will last forever. How can we matter? Come to Jesus and you'll get a name. In the book of Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says that he'll give to us a name written on a stone in the new heavens and the new earth. And whatever that stone is, we don't know. But it means at least this. You will have a name and an identity that will last forever and ever. And all you have to do is receive it. You cannot earn it. It can't be earned by anything you do or how cool you are or how successful you are. It's mercy and grace for the people at the bottom. When you come to Jesus and find out you matter in him, it sets you completely free. It sets you free to do things like control your tongue and show compassion to the helpless and work for justice, right? It sets you free to practice pure kindness for others because you don't need any returns on investments if you have everything you could have ever hoped for in Jesus. Last thing I'll say, and then we're going to be done. Every single one of you in this room, this is what true religion is, the things James has been talking about. And every single one of you, myself included, we have failed. We have. We've all played favorites. We haven't been consistent in our lives. We've used our tongues like weapons and not like medicine. We've ignored the broken and the poor. And so we pray as believers with the hymn writer who wrote, Come thou fount of every blessing. Come, Jesus. Because we are prone to wonder. We are prone to forget the God we love. We are prone to forget our freedom in Jesus. And listen, when you're at the bottom and you cry for Jesus, He comes. He comes to save and transform you by His grace and to make the things that matter to Him matter to you. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for… we thank You for giving us Your Word. We thank You how… Every page of your word draws us to look upon Jesus and how we realize that in him we have everything we need. And Father, we confess it is hard for us to cry out for help. 
it is hard for us to come to an end of ourselves and realize that we are at the very bottom. Father, would you help us to do this? Reveal our sin and brokenness to us so that we would run to Jesus. That we would run to Jesus, the one who matters, and find that he has given up his life for us in order that we would have a name that lasts forever. And Father, would that please set us free. Set us free to be on, on the side of the fatherless and the widow. Set us free to live pure and undefiled lives. Set us free to control our tongues. Father, would you do this for our good and for your glory? For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.